ahead and have a seat. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Galatians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should have one in the seat in front of you. Uh, Underneath the seat in front of you, you can reach down and grab. Uh, So it's Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be in verse 11. Um, So as we begin, as I was reading through this passage, I was reminded uh, just of some of the experiences I've been able to have over the last, I don't know, decade or so doing uh, some short-term mission trips. And as I I was reading this passage, there's this culture clash that's happening. And so it just reminded me of the experiences that I've had as well doing some of these trips. And so opportunities to go to Jamaica. And I just remembered like sitting down at a table and eating jerk chicken and and rice and peas and and just enjoying the food in Jamaica and and getting to know the people and the culture a little bit. And and then I remember going to uh, Germany and having the opportunity to sit down for some schnitzel. I don't even know what that is still. and then going to Morocco and sitting down at a table, a lot of food in my history, um, and just uh, eating or drinking this mango milkshake. This is the best mango milkshake I ever had. And I got it from McDonald's. Um, but I was also just reminded that as I, as I had these experiences, I got the opportunity to start to get to know brothers and sisters uh, in the faith who were serving as missionaries or who were pastors or who were, who were just local believers in the context that I was in at that time. And, and through each of these experiences, I tried to share the gods that we had, the things that we had in common, the ways that we were uh, serving and, and tried to, try to share the gospel, try to minister to people, try to help people in the communities. And I also started to see the differences. The differences in the way that our gatherings looked when we got together on Sunday mornings, the differences in the songs, right? Even as simple as the language that we spoke, of course, but but even more some cultural things that that were just different than the way that we did things, the way that we were used to doing things at the church that I was coming from. And uh, this is how they did it there. And this is how they did it there. And there's these commonalities and then there's these differences. And the reality is that the church has been dealing with this from the beginning. It's been dealing with this clash of cultures coming together because the gospel was this message that wasn't just supposed to stay with one Jewish group or Jewish people. It was supposed to go out to the ends of the earth. And what Paul is about to address is a clash of what happens when these cultures collide. And so when we read in Galatians chapter two, starting in verse 11, Paul's describing what he witnessed when Peter, the apostle, or in this uh, first verse, Cephas, comes to visit Paul in Antioch. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So this is a little background on what's happening. If you were here last week, you remember the story of Paul converting. He was a Jew, a leader, a a persecutor of the church, someone who'd heard the gospel, thought that is crazy, and started to reject it and refute it and so harshly tried to imprison Christians for it. But then he had an encounter with Jesus. 
And he began to believe. And he began to tell others about who Jesus was. And he began to proclaim the gospel and minister in different cities and towns. And so at one point he was ministering in Antioch. And Antioch is this city that had this diverse population. Antioch was a city that the Romans and before them other empires that were in the ruling authorities over them were were using to funnel all kinds of goods and trade between one part of the continent to another. Their location enabled them to move spices and silk and all kinds of things. And so it brought all kinds of people from all kinds of nations together in this one city. Some estimate as high as 500,000, but at least a quarter million people lived in this city. And there was money and there was opportunity and there's sort of there it was all kinds of people coming together in all of these different cultures and things in order to, to make the, the economy work. And Paul began to minister in that city and he began to share the gospel. And what he was doing is he was reaching these Gentiles, which if you don't know, the word Gentiles really just means nations, people that are outside of Israel, people that aren't Jewish. And he started ministering to the Gentiles and he started forming this church. And so they're doing their gatherings and he's teaching and, and they're praising it, the Lord and they're, they're praying and they're singing and they're eating together. And they're beginning to form this Christian community in Antioch. And after a while, Peter goes to the city and he goes to visit uh, Paul and see what he's doing. And as he witnesses what's happening in Antioch, he rejoices. Right, he basically just steps in. Peter, this apostle, this teacher who is primarily ministered out of Jerusalem, ministering to Jews, proclaiming the gospel to anyone that would listen, but predominantly surrounded by people of his same ethnic background, his same uh, religious background, his same understanding of what it means to be a, a follower of God, has now come to this city just as he had witnessed in, in, the, uh, in the vision that God had given him in Acts 10. And now everybody from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of ethnicities, all kinds of places and spaces have come together to worship God. So Peter rejoices. But then some other people from Jerusalem come to Antioch too. And as Peter's there, these are Jewish believers who, who start to question, you know, it's great that the, the church is growing. It's great that, that all of these people have heard the gospel and believe and wanna follow Jesus, but, but should we really do all of these things that they're doing? Should we eat these kinds of foods that we never used to eat? Should we sit at a table with, with these people like we never would have sat with before? Should we do these things in order to, to just continue to build the church or should we recognize that some of these things are things that we just don't do as Jews? And so Peter starts to be swayed by this argument and he, he pulls himself back. And so does even Barnabas. Barnabas, who's like a, a partner of Paul's, who's, who's working alongside him in his missionary journey, he, he also pulls back. And you have this, this clash of cultures, this question, what, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? What do we do when we have these, these different backgrounds coming together in one church? And Peter's response is separate. In other words, Jesus and the gospel is big enough for everybody, but maybe not this table. And so he pulls back, even so much so that, that, that Barnabas pulls back. And Paul's witnessing this and, and he's seeing that and he, he recognizes that there's a problem. And so he opposes Peter. He stands firm against what he's doing. He declares that this is hypocrisy. Now we use that word a lot, right? We, we use that word sometimes to say like, oh, that guy's just a hypocrite. Like he said he was gonna do that, but he didn't really get the job done. But what this is, is this is a charge against Peter. 
This is a charge that Peter is disobeying the will of God, that he's disobeying the commands of God. And so what Paul is saying is that he is actually guilty of sinning against the message of the gospel, of sinning against God and the the people around him by, by combating the message of the gospel. He's refuting the gospel. So what we have is this, this image that we had a, a church gathering together, celebrating the gospel of Jesus, celebrating freedom, celebrating their, their diversity in a way that for once they were able to come together under the banner of Jesus. And then division starts to come in. And it comes in under the sense of Jews following the law. So what's going on here? In order to understand the context of this section, we have to understand what the law is. And as we, as we start to think about that, we can think back to the story of Exodus. And maybe you're familiar with Moses and the burning bush, or maybe you've seen the Prince of Egypt. Um, but the story is familiar enough for us to remember that, that the Israelites, the Hebrews, this group of people that God had, had made a covenant with, had chosen, were, were working and enslaved in Egypt while living in Goshen. And they were suffering. And God saw his people suffering under their enslavement and he offered them a way out. Through the leadership of Moses, God called Moses and then Moses called upon Pharaoh and eventually called upon the people of Israel to to leave, to be set free. And God brought them out of Egypt and and brought them into a a new promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's a land of, of prosperity and peace and provision. That is a land that God has provided for them in order to have a new nation, a new kingdom. And so now in this new kingdom, they have this this establishment of of being God's chosen people in this place for his purposes, to be a witness to the world of his glory. And as a part of this exodus, as a part of moving out of Egypt into the new land, God establishes a covenant. We call it the Mosaic covenant. It's this, this promise that he's made, this contract with the people of Israel. And the people of Israel agree in in the sense that he has given them this land. He has given them this freedom. He has given them this life to live. And so they submit to that and they move into the land and they submit to this covenant. And what that covenant does is it outlines what their society is supposed to look like. How are they supposed to live? What does it mean to be an Israelite? What does it mean to be God's chosen people? What does it mean to be here in Israel? And so God's given them all of these laws. And we see that in in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and continuing eventually through the Old Testament, other laws come out of that as well. But the focus is this, it it outlines what does the temple look like and what does it look like to worship God? When you gather together on the Sabbath, how are you praying? How are you worshiping? What kind of sacrifices are you making? It also means from a daily life perspective, what do you do? How do you, how do you, develop a generous heart? How do you give to people around you? How do you serve the poor and the needy? How do you welcome people who are strangers? How do you uh, live your life in your home? How do you treat your kids and your spouse? And, and what kind of food do you eat? All of these things became the paradigm for the traditions and the, and the histories and the way that they lived. And so the very sense of the law for them became this identity of who they were as Jewish people. Everything that they had to do, everything that they were supposed to do became uh, all about under this, this law, this covenant that God had made with them. And, what, and even more than that, it's not just the way that they live, but it's also what does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be good? And what we see in Romans 7, Paul puts it this way, yet it had, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would 
not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. See what Paul's point is this, is the law outlines the ways to live life, the things you do, the things you don't do. It also outlines what it means to be righteous before the Lord. God wants his people to be holy and set apart. And so in every aspect of their lives, that's true. That's true morally, that's true practically, that's true in worship. Everything is gonna be different. So they're set apart from every other nation in the world. And that became their identity as Israelites. And that became wrapped up all together, all in one, whether it was the way that they ate or the way that they prayed, all of it was something to do with sin. All of it became whether or not they were obedient to the Lord. And so what they began to understand is as they were, as they were doing these things over generations, they started to, to worry and be concerned about how are they worshiping? How are they obeying? How are they following what God is calling them to do? Because the reality of the history of Israel is that they'd messed up plenty of times. And so have we, right? If we're given a list of things to do, we all tend to miss a few things. And so did they. And it got worse and worse. And so through several generations, the kingdom eventually splits into two and, and other nations come in and bring conquer, uh, conquer over them and, and, and bring destruction, even at one point destroying the temple because they were disobedient to the law, because they'd broken the covenant with God, because he'd given them promises to protect them and preserve them and provide for them as long as they obeyed and they didn't. And so over these generations and generations and trials and triumphs and, and struggle, there rose leaders and teachers and, and groups of Jews who would try to, try to define more clearly what it meant to obey the law so that they could avoid God's judgment, so they could receive God's blessing, so they could do everything they needed to do so that God's kingdom would be good. And we see this in the time of Jesus eventually where you have groups like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others who are teaching not just the law, not just the books, uh, not just the things written in the books of scripture, but, but also upon, on top of that, their own requirements. The types of requirements that would define the way that they live their lives. The types of requirements that would say, if you're gonna fast, you're gonna fast this many times a week. If you're gonna pray, you're gonna pray like this. You're gonna wear this kind of clothing. You're gonna eat this kind of food. All of these things are what you're gonna do so you can avoid even breaking the law altogether, that you won't even get close. And so you don't associate with these kinds of people and you don't do this kinds of stuff at mealtime and you, and you do these kinds of things like wash your hands a certain way, all to try to be clean because God wants his people to be holy. And as Israelites, we are God's people. And so we are called to be holy. And so the foundation of their very understanding of identity was rooted in this idea of the law. And not just the, the law that was written, but also eventually the laws that were interpreted from the law that was written, that were then written. See, the idea is this, that Peter and Paul and Barnabas and every other Jew is coming to the conclusion that the gospel has come to bring hope. But their traditions, there's something different. Their understanding of what it means to be who they are it says something a little different. It's supposed to be these laws. It's supposed to be these rules. It's supposed to be these things that we do in order to establish ourselves as God's people. And, and the disciples weren't all just like 
Pharisees of Pharisees, right? Paul is pretty clear in some other passages. Like he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he calls himself. Like he had his stuff together. He had the right classes, the right teachers, the right rulers, the right bloodline, the right family, the right da-da-da-da-da-da-da. He's pretty proud of, of all the things that he could have accomplished. And yet even still, his conversion makes it clear that was nothing. It wasn't good enough. But for the, a lot of the, other, the disciples, they weren't, they weren't special. They weren't set apart. They were, they were fishermen and political like zealots and, and all kinds of other like bottom rung people, tax collectors, like the kinds of people that society doesn't care about, doesn't want around, doesn't want to associate with themselves. And so even in the midst of that, now Peter finds himself in a position of leadership. Peter, who is this lowly fisherman, finds himself in a position of authority. Should... Should he set a better example? Should, should he live up to a higher standard? What does that standard look like? How does he define it? And so now people are, are questioning, should you really eat that kind of food? Should you sit with these people? Should you, should you do these kinds of things? And he's asking himself and he's, he's decided in this moment when Paul witnesses him to pull back, right? To follow that law, to, to just check the boxes. I, I gotta be honest. I, I think that we all kind of want that. I think that each and every single one of us wants the law. We want this, this list of things to do and this list of things not to do because it makes life a little more simple. See, the reality is, is the law itself isn't bad, but what the law does is it reveals that we are. See, every single one of us, here's what I mean by we want this. Every single one of us wants to feel like good about ourselves. And I don't mean just like hot shower on a cold morning good. I mean like we want to feel satisfied, like the decisions that we're making, like the desires that we have, like the things we're trying to do, the, the life that we're trying to live is the right path. We wanna feel like this is the, the direction that we're supposed to go. And this isn't just even like a religious thing, right? This isn't just like only if you have this like God who's gonna judge you and send you to hell. Like this is every single human being feels this sense that inside of them, there's something like off. There's a path we're supposed to walk and we're just a little off kilter. There's this image of who I want to be and I'm trying to reach for it, but I just can't grasp it. I always fall a little short. Every single person in this room and every single person outside feels this way about themselves. And we know this because we can look at everything from, from religion, but also just like think about the most secular political ideology you can imagine, right? It, take God out of the equation and still the most ardent and vehement supporters of that ideology will argue with you and, and defend themselves and justify their actions and look at their own party and their policies and their candidates and, and their own practicalities as the only way to pursue success in this life. Because we want to feel righteous. We want to feel justified. We want to feel like we are making the right decision and walking the right path. But what the law does is it compares everything that we do and shows us that we're, we're not, right? What the law does is it, it reveals to us the own brokenness in ourselves, the own brokenness in our hearts. And so that our desires, those aren't the desires of God. Those are the desires of a selfish person. And the things that we've done, those aren't the, the things of a generous and kind person. Those are the things of a self-centered and, and self-righteous person. And the worship, well, we worship God, but we worship money and we worship power and we worship sex and we worship everything else that we think is gonna make us happy, that we think is gonna bring us satisfaction. And so whether it's a religion or a political ideology or, or just some type of free thinking, 
we try to justify ourselves because we want to feel like we're making the right choices, like we're living the right path. And the law just continues to remind us that we're not. It just continues to remind us that we're broken and that we're sinners. And so while Peter and Barnabas are, are stuck trying to figure out, should we, should we sit with these Gentiles or should we sit at our own table? Paul begins to recognize the division that it's creating. Whatever the motivation for Peter and, Paul, Peter and Barnabas, whether it's simply their own ethnic identity and their reminder of what they're used to or a more nefarious issue of, well, you actually have to have Jesus plus this. You have to have Jesus plus be Jewish. So you need to get circumcised and you need to do these things. You need to only eat kosher food and all these things. Whatever it is for them, what Paul recognizes is that that's not the gospel. Because what the gospel says is that, yes, the law is, as given by God gives us a clear indication that we are broken sinners, that we are all of us experiencing this sense of unrighteousness and unhealth and, and, and pain and suffering in this world because of the sin around us and the sin within us. And what Paul is saying is that is what we need to be reminded of from the law. It's not that, okay, well, as long as you eat the right food and, and do the right things, then you're gonna be okay, because you're not. The law can't do that. The law can't prove us righteous. The law can only show us what we've done and what we've done wrong. I'll give you an example. The, the first thing that uh, Lauren and I ever did as a couple is um, we got married, and then we, a few months later, we went to San Diego. We could only afford one night in San Diego, so we wanted to, to do as much as we could and as much time as we could take, so we left really early in the morning, and um, we... We got up, we got, and if you haven't done the drive, right? The drive from San Diego to San Diego from here is like desert, farmland, mountains, beach. Like not the most exciting drive. You wanna do it as fast as you can. So I was trying to do it as fast as I could. And there's nobody on the road. It was early. And so um, eventually Lauren's asleep as she does. And I'm driving as I do. And uh, then the lights flash in my rear view mirror. And so I get pulled over. And uh, the cop comes up asked me how fast I was driving. I told him I didn't know, like you do. Um, this is my repentance, apparently. Um, and, uh, and the cop gave me a ticket, right, for speeding. Now, I was doing all kinds of things right. I was using my turn signals. I was, had my registration, my insurance. Like, I'd gotten off and on the ramp, on ramps and highways and everything. I was, I was doing everything I was supposed to do, except one thing. But, like, I hadn't killed anybody Right? I hadn't stolen the car. Like, there's all kinds of laws I didn't break. But I was speeding. And so I got a ticket that cost more than a hotel room. See, that's what the law does. It can give you this list of things to do, to be generous and kind and, and loving and, and amazing in all kinds of ways. And you could do your best to fulfill that as best as you can. And then it can give you this list of, of all the things that you're not supposed to do. And, and if you just do one of them, you're still guilty, right? It doesn't matter if you, if you do everything on one list and just one thing wrong. And just to be honest, I've done more than one thing wrong and probably you have too. And so what the law does is it reveals to us that we can't justify ourselves. We can't fix us, right? If we're broken people experiencing the pain and the suffering and the loss of sin, we can't do anything to change that about ourselves. And if we made one mistake, we're guilty. 
And so what Paul is beginning to recognize in Peter and Barnabas and the issue here in Antioch is that if people are gonna to try to start justifying themselves, they're only gonna be frustrated. They're only gonna be frustrated because what he knows about the law is it doesn't justify. Right? He says that in verse 16, yet we know that, is a, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul knows, remember he had the list, he's got the resume, he's tried to live the life of righteousness and failed. He knows the weight and, the, and the, the pain of trying to be this perfect person and he can't do it. And maybe you have too. I mean, maybe you've experienced that in your own life. Maybe that's your view even of, of church is that if you continue to come and you show up and you just think, all I have to do is just do a little bit more. I just have to check one more box. I just have to, to read my Bible a little bit more. I have to pray a little bit more. I have to give a little bit more. I have to serve a little bit more. I just have to do a little bit more. And that's your understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And so you're just kind of tired. You're frustrated. Maybe you're just hurt because there's no hope, right? The reality is, it's like I said, it's not just Christians that feel this sense of, of sin. Every single person in this world kind of feels like they're broken, kind of feels like they've made mistakes, kind of feels like there's something that life could have been better at than the way that they're living. You're feeling that. And maybe that's your understanding of the gospel, is that it's just another system to tell you you're broken, you're beat down, you're worthless. And all you need to do is stay humble because God is great. But that's not the gospel that Paul is trying to preach. That's not the message that Jesus came to bring. I was talking to Tim about this uh, earlier and um, he had this really good way of saying it that I'm gonna screw up. So anything profound I say, just go back and talk to him. But um, the, the reality is this, is if your understanding of, of the gospel, if your understanding of church is that it's just, uh, you are a broken person, imperfect, a sinner, that you, are, you cannot justify yourself, that your good works are filthy rags, that all of these things that you try and try and try to do are never gonna be enough, amen. There's no point of amen. That's not good news. That's not any better than anything else. That's just the same workings, legalistic ideologies of every other religion is that there's some judge out there, whether it's God or society or social media, that there's some judge that's gonna tell you whether you are right or wrong and you have to try to justify yourself at every turn. And you can't do it. You certainly can't do it before the law of a perfect and holy and righteous God. None of us can. The message of the gospel is so much bigger. If the, if the hope and the healing and the, and the peace and the justification and the righteousness that we find is outside of ourselves, if it's not something that we have to conjure up and do for ourselves, but it's something that someone else has done for us and given to us, that is something radically different. That is something radically more beautiful. That is something that we can cling to and hold to and have hope in. That is something that can give us hope for moving from death to life. That is something that gives us a peace without all under, that surpasses all understanding. That is something that gives us a sense of love and confidence and joy within us that we cannot explain. That is something that has us set it on a, on a narrow path, walking a narrow road and, and doing that with people from all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of experiences and all kinds of ethnicities and doing so together as one person under one, or as one body under one banner. 
And that's what Paul is talking about in, in verse 17, when he says this, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If I just try to follow the law again, I'm gonna fail again. If I try to follow the law again, I'm gonna fail again. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But Christ did die. He came into this world. Into this world. He humbled himself for us because he loves us because he was able to live that perfect life that we couldn't live, because he could check all of the boxes and keep all the wrong boxes unchecked and make sure that he could do that so he could be a substitute for us and he could die for us, taking upon himself our punishment for our sin from a righteous and judging God, but a God who loves us and in his mercy sent his son to die for us that we could be judged as righteous. A God who sees us and knows us and sees our brokenness and wants to bring healing and hope and peace and life in the midst of our death. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That's what Paul is so frustrated by Peter about. Because it's not about doing the right things and looking the right way and wearing the right clothes and going to the right church and being a part of the right team. It's about following Jesus and being set free from all of that bondage. It's about following Jesus and letting others know about the freedom that you've experienced in him. It's about understanding that the law gives us a standard for what life might look like, but not the, not the ethnic and, and not the social things that he's talking about in the law, but the standard that God has given us to be a human being and what it looks like to live free in light of that. And God has set us free through Christ and given us a life to live in him. And so today, as we get celebrate baptisms, that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And so if you've been baptized, today is a reminder. It's a reminder for you to, to remember what you, what you experienced and what you committed to and what you understood and what you did when you were baptized. And so be encouraged by that. But if you haven't been baptized... If you haven't been baptized and you're thinking about maybe this is something that I want to experience, maybe these are the things that, I, that I've been missing. Maybe I've just been trying so hard to do the right things and have the right things in order. Maybe I've even just wished that it was the right timing and I've done the right things and, and I've got everything in order. One of the, one of the women that got baptized in the last service, uh, she said it this way, that she was trying to put off baptism until she was the perfect Christian. She was trying to put it off until she'd done all the right things and checked all the right boxes so that when she got up here, everyone could know that she was, she was worthy. But what she realized is that she would never be worthy because none of us is worthy, but we're loved. God loves us. That's why he sent his son for us. That's why he died for us. That's why he wants to give us new life because he wants to be with us. The miracle of the gospel is that God loves us so much that he's willing to die for us so that we can have life with him. And so if you haven't been baptized and you even just have more questions about that, we have some baptism counselors that are gonna be standing in the back uh, ready to talk to you, to pray with you. They have lanyards on. Uh, I'm gonna pray right now. And just as, as everybody bows their head, feel free, just stand up and you can head back there. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you would continue to be with us and guide us. God, as we take this moment to celebrate what you've done for us, 
and specifically what you are doing in the lives of the people here today to get baptized. God, we praise you for the new life that we get to celebrate. Father, we ask that you would work in our hearts and in our minds, giving us renewal, Father, and and just an opportunity to remember what you uh, have done already in our lives and, and to call us to action to what you are going to do in the future to see a vision for what it looks like to be a new person, a new creation, Father, and to live that out. Father, we praise you for the people that are uh, celebrating and have already stepped forward. God, we pray especially for those who are wrestling in their minds right now, who are thinking about whether or not they should stand up, whether or not they should talk to somebody, whether or not they should just ask questions and take the next step to see if they really believe this faith, if they really have an understanding of what it means that Jesus died for them. God, we pray that you'd give them boldness to stand up and just ask to go back and talk to someone on the prayer team, to find someone after the service and just ask. Whatever the next step is, God, we pray that you'd help us all to take it. In Jesus' name, amen.